Hello, this is Father John Arthur, or Associate Pastor at Holy Ghost Catholic Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. This is our 43rd installment on Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. 133 presentations prepared by Pope John Paul II for delivery during 1979 and 1984. Over those five years, we are indebted to Professor Michael Waldstein, whose edition we're using. Today I want to complete the analysis of the words Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount about adultery and concupiscence, and in particular, the last part of the statement in which the concupiscence of the look is specifically defined as adultery committed in the heart. We have already shown above that these words are usually understood in the sense of desire for another's wife, that is, according to the spirit of the Decalogue's Ninth Commandment. It seems, however, that this interpretation, a more restricted one, can and should be extended in the light of the overall context. It seems that the moral evaluation of concupiscence, of looking to desire which Christ calls adultery committed in the heart, depends, above all, on the personal dignity of the man and the woman. This holds for those who are not joined in marriage, and perhaps even more so for those who are husband and wife. A second reading. Our earlier analysis of the statement in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to desire her in a reductive way has already committed adultery with her in his heart, shows that we must extend and above all deep in the interpretation described earlier with respect to the ethical meaning contained in the statement. Let us take a closer look at the situation described by the teacher, in which the one who commits adultery in the heart by an interior act of concupiscence expressed in a look is the man. It is significant that Christ, when he speaks about the object of this act, does not stress that she is another's wife, a woman who is not one's own wife, but says generically, a woman. Adultery committed in the heart is not circumscribed by the limits of the interpersonal relation that allows one to identify adultery committed in the flesh. It is not these limits that exclusively and essentially decide the question of adultery committed in the heart. But the very nature of concupiscence, expressed in this case by a look, that is, by the fact that this man whom Christ uses as an example looks to desire. Adultery in the heart is not committed only because the man looks in this way at a woman who is not his wife but precisely because he looks in this way at a woman. Even if he were to look in this way at the woman who is his wife, he would commit the same adultery in the heart. This interpretation takes into account more comprehensively what was said in our whole analyses about concupiscence, and in the first place about the concupiscence of the flesh as a permanent element of man's sinfulness status nature lapse, the state of fallen nature. The concupiscence that arises as an interior act on this foundation, as we have attempted to show in our analysis above, 
changes the very intentionality of the woman's existence for the man by reducing the wealth of the perennial call to the communion of persons, the wealth of the deep attraction of masculinity and femininity, to the mere satisfaction of the body's sexual urge, which is closely related to the concept of instinct. Such a reduction has the effect that the person, in this case the woman, becomes for the other person, the man, above all an object for the possible satisfaction of his own sexual urge. In this way, a deformation takes place in the reciprocal for, which loses its character as a communion of persons in favor of the utilitarian function. The man who looks in the way described in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, makes use of the woman of her femininity to satisfy his own instinct. Even if he does not use her in an external act, he has already taken such an attitude in his interior when he makes this decision about a particular woman. Adultery committed in the heart consists precisely in this. A man can commit such adultery in the heart even with his own wife if he treats her only as an object for the satisfaction of instinct. It is not possible to reach this second reading of the words of Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28 if we limit ourselves to the purely psychological interpretation of concupiscence without taking into account what constitutes its specific theological character, namely the organic relation between concupiscence as an act and the concupiscence of the flesh as, so to speak, a permanent disposition that derives from human sinfulness. It seems that the purely psychological or sexological interpretation of concupiscence is not a sufficient basis for understanding our text from the Sermon on the Mount. On the other hand, if we take the theological interpretation as a point of reference without undervaluing what remains unchanged in the first psychological interpretation, the second theological interpretation appears to us more complete. In fact, it clarifies the ethical meaning of the key statement from the Sermon on the Mount to which we owe the adequate dimension of the ethos of the gospel. Purity of heart as the fulfillment of the commandment. In delineating this dimension, Christ remains faithful to the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish but to fulfill. He consequently shows how deep down it is necessary to go, how the innermost recesses of the human heart must be thoroughly revealed so that this heart might become a place in which the law is fulfilled. The statement of Matthew chapter 5 verses 27 and 28, which shows the inner perspective of adultery committed in the heart, and in this perspective points the right way toward fulfilling the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, is a singular argument for this conclusion. This statement, Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28, refers in fact to the sphere in which the issue is purity of heart. See Matthew chapter 5, verse 8 an expression that has a broad meaning in the Bible. Elsewhere, we will have further occasion to consider how this commandment, you shall not commit adultery, whose mode of expression and contents 
are a clear and severe prohibition, like the commandment, you shall not desire your neighbor's wife, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, is fulfilled precisely by purity of heart. See Theology of the Body, 50 through 59. The strictness and power of the prohibition is indirectly attested by a text later in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Christ speaks figuratively about tearing out your eye and cutting off your hand in case these members are a cause of sin. See Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. We have pointed out earlier that the legislation of the Old Testament, although it contained many harsh punishments, did not contribute toward fulfilling the law because its casuistry was marked by many compromises with the concupiscence of the flesh. See Theology of the Body 35 through 36, 4. Christ, by contrast, teaches that one fulfills the commandment by purity of heart, in which human beings cannot share without firmness in facing everything that has its origin in concupiscence of the flesh. Purity of heart is gained by the one who knows how to be consistently demanding toward his heart, toward his heart and toward his body. The commandment, you shall not commit adultery, finds its right motive in the indissolubility of marriage, in which man and woman unite with each other in virtue of the original plan of God, so that the two become one flesh. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. By its essence, adultery conflicts with this unity in as much as this unity corresponds to the dignity of the persons. Christ not only confirms this essential ethical meaning of the commandment, but his aim is to anchor it firmly in the very depth of the human person. The new dimension of ethos is always linked with the revelation of the depth that is called heart, and with the liberation of the heart from concupiscence, so that man can shine more fully in this heart, male and female, in all the inner truth of the reciprocal four, freed from the constraint and disability of the spirit, which are the result of the concupiscence of the flesh, human beings, male and female, find themselves again in the freedom of the gift, which is the condition of all life together in truth, and more particularly in the freedom of reciprocal self-gift, because both as husband and wife must form the sacramental unity willed, as Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 says, by the Creator Himself. What Christ demands from all His actual and potential listeners in the Sermon on the Mount clearly belongs to that inner space in which man, precisely the one who listens, must rediscover the lost fullness of his humanity and want to regain it. This fullness in the reciprocal relation of persons of man and woman is what the teacher demands in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 and 28. Having in mind, above all, the indissolubility of marriage, but also every other form of shared life of men and women, the shared life that makes up the pure and simple guiding thread of existence. Human life is by its nature coeducational, and its dignity as well as its balance depend at every moment of history and in every place of geographic longitude and latitude 
on who she shall be for him and he for her. The words spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount have without any doubt such a universal and deep reach. Only in this way can they be understood on the lips of him who knew to its final depth what was in every man, John chapter 2, verse 25, and who at the same time carried within himself the mystery of the redemption of the body, as St. Paul put it. Should we fear the severity of these words, or rather have confidence in their salvific content, in their power? At any rate, this analysis of the words Christ spoke in the Sermon on the Mount opens the road for further reflections that are indispensable for reaching a full awareness of historical man, and above all, of contemporary man, of his consciousness and of his heart. And with these words, our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II, concluded his 43rd Catechesis, Man and Woman, He Created Them, a Theology of the Body. In order for us to appreciate this catechesis, it's good for us to remember where we've been. The first part of Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body is all about the words of Christ. What has the Lord said to us in person? In the first chapter of the first part, Christ appeals to the beginning. When asked about divorce and remarriage, he says, In the beginning it was not this way. It was because of the hardness of your heart that Moses allowed the decree of divorce. So John Paul II reminded us not only of those words of Christ appealing to the beginning, but about the words we read in Genesis, how God created male and female in the divine image for an intimate communion of life and love. Chapter 2, in which this 43rd Catechesis is found, is about Christ appealing to the human heart. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, whoever looks with a disordered desire, whoever looks with lust upon the others committed adultery already in the heart. Christ appeals to our hearts. And not only the hearts of those who heard him in his initial presentation of the Sermon on the Mount, but even until he should return in glory, any who would listen to him, and his voice resounds still in the sure and certain teaching of Mother Church. His voice still resounds throughout the pages of sacred scripture, which are but his book. And he is the center of all of the scripture, Old and New Testament alike, explicitly in the New and implicitly in the Old. In appealing to the human heart, Pope John Paul II reminds us of the Sermon on the Mount. That's where the Lord was saying this. And he focuses on one line. John Paul II has reminded us of our fallen nature. He has addressed the man of concupiscence, a tendency to sin. And he spoke to us about a threefold concupiscence of the eyes, of the flesh, and of the pride of life, echoing the teaching of St. John in his first letter. We're in the third part of chapter 2, Commandment and Ethos. The commandment of God, the sixth commandment, the ninth commandment, not to commit adultery, not to covet your neighbor's wife. The ethos of the gospel takes these commandments to the next level. Not only don't do these exterior sins, not to commit adultery, but not to do interior sins, to covet your neighbor's wife, which is interior, and then even to deepen it, to not even look upon any, whether someone else's wife or not. We're always to be pure of heart in the way we look upon each other. This third part of chapter 2, Commandment and Ethos, has three parts itself. Do not commit adultery, whoever looks to desire, and then has already committed adultery in the heart. 
This 43rd Catechesis addresses at least two parts. A second reading of the commandment and how purity of heart is a fulfillment, the fulfillment of the commandment. So that's a brief overview of where we've been and where we've come to. So now to look a little bit more deeply at this 43rd Catechesis, male and female, he created them, Theology of the Body, by Pope John Paul II. The Holy Father reminds us that the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not cover thy neighbor's wife, is expanded and deepened in its interpretation by the Lord Jesus Christ and by our Holy Father, Pope John Paul II. When our Lord cites the commandment, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, that is an external act. But our Lord takes it to the next level by also forbidding the commission of adultery in the heart. For those who look with that disordered desire, that reductive desire, have made the other, the adulterer, in the heart. So this is a deepening and an expansion of the commandment. The Lord Jesus Christ did it. The Holy Father is just pointing it out. The Lord Jesus himself, though, doesn't just drop commandments left and right. He also gives us the grace that we might fulfill the law and the prophets, that we might keep the commandments, that we might be pure of heart. And he gives us these graces we need in his sacraments, through his church, beginning in holy baptism, and for whichever sins we may commit after our baptism, the sacrament of penance, the sacrament of the Eucharist for strength and fortification, the sacrament of confirmation for the same, although only once received, and especially the graces of the sacrament of holy marriage. One of the fruits of John Paul II's Theology of the Body is actually the John Paul II Institute for Studies of Marriage and the Family with campuses around the world. How many graduates have done directed and focused studies on one or another? So many different aspects of these talks the Pope gave. Pope John Paul II is highlighting for us here in this 43rd Catechesis that the way we look upon each other, that's what Jesus is checking. Of course, we're not to act out sexually, immodestly, impurely. But now, he says, don't even look that way upon another. He's taking it up a notch. Even if a husband were to look in this way, in this reductive, desirous way, as an object of pleasure only at the woman who is his wife, he would commit the same adultery in the heart. This passage of John Paul II's 43rd Catechesis, together with the next one I'll give you, caused great consternation, we're told, by Professor Waldstein in his footnote. The other passage, a man can commit such adultery in the heart, even with his own wife, if he treats her only as an object for the satisfaction of instinct. So here you'd think, how could a husband and a wife commit adultery in their heart if they're married? Well, if she is looking at him as if he is only a bull stud, only for sexual gratification, or if she's looking at him only as if she's a rack of lamb for sexual gratification only, and not recognizing the dignity of the person, not recognizing the image of God in the other, not recognizing the good which is holy marriage and the use of holy marriage, for the continuance of the race as well as the unification of the couple, that's when this adultery in the heart arises, even between spouses. 
So in a certain sense, some people would read John Paul II, oh, he's a big sexual libertine. He's actually restricting things. He's not just saying, go have at it, exercise the rights of the body, the rights of marriage. He's saying, be careful, ladies and gentlemen. Be careful, brothers and sisters. Be pure of heart, even with the blessed wedding ring upon your hands. Be pure of heart. Be pure of intention. Love each other deeply, but rightly. Very serious stuff here. I'll repeat both passages again and then go to Professor Waldstein's note. Even if a husband were to look in this way, the reductive, desirous way, as an object of pleasure only at the woman who is his wife, he would commit the same adultery in the heart. In the second passage, a man can commit such adultery in the heart even with his own wife if he treats her only as an object for the satisfaction of instinct. Professor Waldstein's note here is very important. When this statement by Pope John Paul II was first quoted in the Italian press, it led to an uproar that was picked up also in international press, including major papers in the United States of America and networks. Most reporters failed to grasp the difference between desire in the positive sense and the reductive concupiscent desire in the immediately following paragraph of The Theology of the Body, John Paul II points out that a merely psychological or sexological understanding of sexuality, which is the dominant understanding in our culture, will not allow one to grasp the difference. And that says it all. So God bless Professor Waldstein for his very informative note there. It's good for us to acknowledge that here Pope John Paul II has acknowledged both the sexual urge and sexual instinct as being closely related. He approaches this in a psychological way, so you don't need to have supernatural faith or Christian revelation to speak about the sexual urge or sexual instinct. However, the Holy Father does have Christian faith, does have supernatural belief, and so he also knows not only about psychological realities, as they do in the academy, but he also knows about theological realities, including concupiscence, the tendency we have to sin, including sins of the flesh and sins of the heart. Pope John Paul II points out how psychological or sexological analyzation of these realities without the theological interpretation of man, without an understanding of concupiscence as a consequence, a sad consequence of the fall of original sin, is a truncated vision. It's a limited vision, an insufficient vision, a not entirely clear vision, but together with the psychological, sexological appreciation and the theological vision, these two interpretations of the same passage of the Sermon on the Mount give us a more complete picture of human nature, of the human being, of the one whom Christ has come to redeem by his death and resurrection, the one whom Christ is addressing when he appeals to our hearts. Blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, not only in the hereafter, but even in the here and now, when we look upon each other with purity of intention, and of gaze, the way we look at each other. Regarding concupiscence, Pope John Paul II here in this 43rd Catechesis insists that it is a permanent element of man's sinfulness. Just because Christ has died and Christ is risen does not take away the tendency to sin within us. 
Just because we have been baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ does not mean the tendency to sin is not within us. Even until the last day, this tendency to sin, and if you like the threefold concupiscence given us by God through St. John, concupiscence of the eyes, concupiscence of the flesh, the pride of life, these are with us as part of our fallen human nature. And so Pope John Paul II addresses just that. He says concupiscence arises as an interior act on the foundation of the fallen state of nature. The tendency to sin comes from within. Status naturae lapse, the state of fallen nature. It is from within that the fullness of the heart speaks and the fullness of the heart acts. So when my heart is pure, then my acts and words will be pure. And when my heart is not pure, my words, my deeds will likewise not be pure. The Lord is calling us to purity in his Sermon on the Mount. He's telling us to turn our backs on a sinful way of looking upon each other so that we might fulfill the law and the prophets by his grace, to his glory, and our own salvation and sanctification. Pope John Paul II, in this 43rd Catechesis, points out that Christ's statement in the Sermon on the Mountain is a key statement, which clarifies ethical meaning. What does it all mean? And it allows the adequate dimension of the ethos of the gospel to be appreciated It seems that for Pope John Paul II, this passage of the Sermon on the Mount is key to our moral life in Christ. And so it would be complementary to his encyclical Veritatis Splendor, where he reminds us that the truth is splendid, and Christ Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. And our yes is to be yes, and our no is to be no. Our yes to God, our yes to grace, our yes to goodness and holiness our no to sin and Satan, our no to seduction, our no to this concupiscent desire of the eyes and of the heart, all of this wrapped up, packed into Christ's one statement, one passing phrase in chapter 5 of St. Matthew's Gospel, verses 27 and 28. You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks with desire upon the other has already committed adultery in the heart. Difficult, especially in our oversexed age, in our sexually saturated media, sure. Possible? Oh yes. By God's grace, and only by his grace, and our cooperation with it, which means we will to receive his grace, which means we will to be pure of heart. All of this is a part of the theology of the body. Pope John Paul II, in this 43rd Catechesis, asks a rhetorical question as he concludes it. He asks, should we fear the severity of these words, or rather have confidence in their salvific content, in their power? It seems to me this is a rhetorical question on his part, and my understanding is that the Holy Father wants us to have confidence in the salvific content of the gospel, the power of the gospel to set us free. What will set us free? The truth will set us free. The truth about God and the truth about ourselves, about our human nature, how wonderfully God has made us and even more wondrously redeemed us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Until next time, God bless you.